I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 of our chapter. And uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, I'm going to begin by reading the first four verses. Ready? For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. I don't blame you if you feel like the writer of the Hebrews is being a little bit repetitive in his themes. Because over the last several weeks, as we've been making our way through Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, and now into chapter 10, we do see him emphasizing the similar themes. And the similar themes are simply this. The complete and glorious work of Jesus, the Messiah, on behalf of his people. And contrasting that with the temporary and imperfect work of the sacrifices that were made under the old covenant, under the Old Testament. But I like the way that he phrases it all anew. This is an illustration that's sort of fresh to us here in chapter 10. If you take a look at verse 1, he says this, having a shadow of the good things to come. In other words, The laws, the ceremonies, especially the rituals, and most particularly the sacrifices associated with the Old Covenant, they were like a shadow of the reality of the work of Jesus to come. Now, friends, when the reality has come, why would you ever still stick with the shadow? If you're going to buy a house, do you want to buy the shadow of the house or the house itself? If you're going to get a car, do you want the shadow of the car or the car itself? Now, it's not like the shadow is insignificant. The shadow proves that there's something really there. The shadow has an importance and a significance all its own. But the shadow is nothing compared to the reality. And this great picture that he paints for us is that all those Old Testament sacrifices were like a shadow. But the work of Jesus is the reality. Now let's focus on the work of Jesus on our behalf. And then he continues the point on verse 2 where he says... Would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, it's a familiar argument to us by now. If those Old Testament sacrifices could have solved the problem of sin, then they would have ceased to be offered. It would have fixed the problem, but they couldn't fix the problem. Therefore, they had to be offered again and again and again. Pointing this out as he continues in verse 2. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Verse 3 now. But those in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, because the Israelite had to continually come to the temple and to the altar and have their sin dealt with by animal sacrifice, it reminded them every time, you're a sinner You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Instead of once and for all in this dramatic way, putting away the sin problem. You see, the blood of animals could never take away sins. But the work of Jesus on the cross takes away 
sins. You see, every sacrifice was really only a reminder. Here's the reminder. Your sin problem remains. It wasn't fixed last time. Maybe it was covered over, but it wasn't fixed. It's kind of like this. If there's a weed growing in your yard and you go over and you pull off the top of that weed. And as far as you can see, the weed is gone. Yes, I killed the weed. What's going to happen? It's going to spring right up again because you didn't pull it out by the root. The fact that it comes up again shows that it was never dealt with. properly. The fact that the animal sacrifices had to continue proves that they never finally dealt with sin in any conclusive way. Or it's like this. Let's say somebody is on dialysis because they have kidney problems. And the doctor says, great, we got a great career for you. Come in for dialysis three times a week. Was that a cure? No. Now, it's better than dying. And the animal sacrifice was better than doing nothing with sin. We're not saying that the animal sacrifices were pointless or fruitless. No, no, they had a place in God's plan. But it's like the difference between being on dialysis and getting a new kidney. This is the idea that God puts forth to us. Look, at he continues on verse 4 where he says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's just impossible. Matter of fact, the Old Testament word for atonement is kofar. It means to cover. That's what God did with the sins under animal sacrifice. He covered over them. He did. If you want to use this illustration, it's like he swept the dirt under the rug. What he does under the new covenant is not only does he take out the rug and clean it, he remodels the whole house. It's the entire difference between a final dealing with sin and a temporary dealing with sin. And you see, all other approaches to the sin problem are like a treadmill or like that little wheel in the hamster cage that goes around and around and around where it's all this activity, but nothing is ever resolved. And so if you were trying to take care of your sin problem by animal sacrifice, how many animals would you have to sacrifice? Well, you just keep them coming. If you were going to try to deal with your sin problem by your good works, how many good works do you need to have? You need to keep them coming and they need to be perfect. If you're going to deal with your sin problem by religious rituals, how many religious rituals you need? I don't know, but you better keep them coming on and on. It goes. But if you're going to deal with your sin problem by the perfect work of Jesus on the cross, then it's dealt with finally, completely. There needs to be only one sacrifice. Now, He's going to confirm this idea and develop it a little further by telling us, and this is what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us, open up your Bibles to Psalm 40. Now, you don't need to open up your Bible there because he's going to do it for us and quote it. But now he's going to quote Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. And by the way, he's going to quote them to him from his Bible, which was the Septuagint version, version translated from the Greek. So it's not from our English Bible, so it might not be precisely the same as Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8 in your Bible, but it was the same in his Bible. Take a look at it here, starting at verse 6. Therefore, excuse me, verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, now quoting Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. 
previously saying, and now he's quoting the psalm again, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, but had no pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Friends, there's a lot of depth in here. Matter of fact, what the writer of the Hebrews does for us is it's really something remarkable. He lifts our vision beyond our time and place. And he takes our mind and he takes our heart and he sends us back to the period of time before Jesus ever appeared as a babe in Bethlehem. Did you know this? That Jesus existed before he ever came at Christmas. That Bethlehem was not the beginning of Jesus. And a matter of fact, I mean, I can go even further. When Jesus was miraculously conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb, that was not even the beginning of Jesus. No, Jesus existed before that because Jesus is not only the son of God. He is God, the son, the second member of the Trinity. And what the writer of Hebrews does for us right now is he says, I want you to think back to the place where the father had a plan, had a desire to bring redemption to humanity, even though humanity had not yet been existed, had not yet been created. And the son came and presented himself to the father. And he said, Father, here I am to do your will, to fulfill your plan. That's why it says there in verse five, when he came into the world, he said this. The psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke prophetically of the words of Jesus before he ever came into the world. I don't know about you, but I didn't say anything before I came into the world. Before I came into the world, I didn't exist or I only existed in the plan and in the heart of God. But Jesus is different. He's different than you. He's different than me. He's different from any human being who's ever walked this earth because Jesus is more than a human. He was fully God and fully man. And there was a time when Jesus simply in his deity as God, the son, the second person of the Trinity, he said unto the father, verse five, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. God, you're not going to be pleased just by more and more animal sacrifices. No, but what you really want, look at it there, verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. That body that Jesus appeared in, first as a baby in Bethlehem, and then growing up in Nazareth, and eventually doing his ministry all throughout Galilee and into Judea. And that body that was eventually crucified on the cross and then risen from the dead, that body was specially prepared to be the body that would... I don't know what the right word is, and I I pray I'm not speaking heretically. Give me a little latitude here. The body that would house the God-man, fully God. And fully man. I know that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, could not speak. Although, did you know that there's some strange Christian legends about that? That Jesus basically came out of Mary's womb preaching and reciting the scriptures and such. It's not true. If anything, he came out of Mary's room crying just like any other baby. But please, if that baby could have spoken, 
that baby would have touched his own flesh and he would have said, Father, a body you have prepared for me. But that's not all. It's not just that the body was prepared. But notice this in verse 7. And then again in verse 9, it's repeated. It says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Father, that's why I'm here. I have come to this earth. I came as a baby in Bethlehem. I was born at that very first Christmas. I was born. Why? To do your will, O God. I hope this morning that I'm looking out upon a bunch of people who want to do God's will. If there's a person in here who has no concern whatsoever for doing God's will, I'm really glad you're here, but it is a little bit of a strange place for you to be if you have no desire whatsoever to do God's will. And there have been great men and women throughout history who have a desire to do God's will. We think of some of the giants of the Christian faith, some of the most holy women or some of the most holy men who have ever lived. And they said, God, I want to do your will. Do you realize that not one of them succeeded perfectly? Not one of them. Every one of them sinned. Every one of them fell short of God's standard. Yet there was one. There was one who not only said, I have come to do your will, O God, but he actually lived the sinless life to back it up. And he did. He perfectly performed the will of God. That's why where it says in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He says, That it was also an act of his own will to submit. Jesus willingly said, Father, send me. Jesus willingly said, Father, I will obey you. Jesus willingly said, Father, I will go to the cross. It wasn't like he got outvoted by the other two members of the Trinity. It didn't work like that at all. No, Jesus willingly went. His will was manifested in coming as a baby. His will was manifested in the life that he lived. His will was manifested first at Gethsemane where he decided to go to the cross and then at the cross itself where he laid down the life, his life for our sins. And notice it here in verse 10 where it says, look at verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of, of the body of Jesus Christ. Would you look at those words carefully with me for a moment? By that will. Whose will? Jesus's will. The will of God. By that will, we have been sanctified. Friends, do you know what sanctification is? Sanctification is what you might call Christian growth, Christian advancement, um, progressing on in the Christian life. This idea that as we live our life with God, we should become more obedient to God. We should draw closer to God. And I will say this, and I don't mean this to heap guilt upon anybody in this room, but it's just a fact. It applies to me just as much as it applies to you. But if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, shouldn't you be closer to Jesus today and more obedient in your life with him today than you were five years ago? I mean, this is just how it should be in our life with God. And sanctification describes that process. Of drawing closer, of living a more holy, a more obedient life unto God. Now, friends, I want you to notice this. Do you understand that the key to your Christian progress, the key to your Christian growth is his will for you? It's not trying harder. Do you realize that for some people, 
But that is what the message of the Christian life comes down to them as. I think sometimes we as pastors, we're the worst when it comes to this. And if this is the impression that you received from me, I tell you, I, I, I tell you with all earnest, I am sorry. And I don't want that to be the impression that you get when I teach up here on this platform. I don't want you to get the impression that the key to the Christian life is for you to try harder. Try harder. Try harder. Try harder. No, you know what the key to your Christian growth and progression is? Join yourself to Jesus. Abide in him. Draw close to Jesus. Now, I do want to be careful to say there is a place for trying harder in the Christian life. There is. And sometimes we need that little kick in the seat of our pants. Hey, come on now. Let's get going. There is a place for that. And the Bible addresses that. But that's not the core of Christian progress. That's not the core of Christian growth. And friends, sometimes I fear that people just get the message when they walk out of these doors. Try harder. Try harder. Try harder. Listen, what I want you to get the message of is look to Jesus. Look to him and the perfection of who he is and what he's done for you. Draw close to him. And that work of growth, that work of progress, that work of maturity in the Christian life, it will happen. And it'll happen based on his once for all sacrifice for us. Look, as he continues on here at verse 11, let's read this extended passage where he says this. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these there is no longer an offering for sin. Friends, in those seven or eight verses, there is a lot for us to unpack. So let's kind of take a look at it piece by piece. Go back to verse 11 where he says this. Every priest stands ministering daily. He's talking about the posture of the priests. As we've noted before, when God commanded the tabernacle of Israel to be made, and later on when the temple was made, there was all sorts of furnishings for it. There was an Ark of the Covenant. There was an altar of incense. There was an altar for animal sacrifice. There was a table of showbread. There was a golden uh, lampstand or, or, uh, or menorah. There were all these things that were part of the furnishings of the tabernacle. You know what there wasn't? There wasn't a chair or a bench in the whole place. Because God never wanted the priests to sit down. They had to stand and do their work because their work had to continue. And to sit down would imply that their work was finished. That's why the priests had to stand. But look at the contrast. Verse 12, it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, having finished his work of sacrificing for sin. It's almost as if you would go out to heaven and see Jesus seated there at the right hand of God, the father say, Jesus, get up. Don't you have more work to do in atoning for our sins? No, nope, I'm done. He says, I can sit down. The work is finished. My posture can reflect that. And isn't that a beautiful thing 
that Jesus there, he is seated at the right hand. He doesn't have to be like those priests who minister daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. No, not over and over again, but rather, rather, Jesus continues in a ministry, a ministry of intercession, a ministry of defense, a ministry of care for his people, but not a work of atonement that is forever finished. You know, this different aspect of talking about the standing posture of the priests and the sitting posture of Jesus in heaven. It makes me think about posture as we approach worship here on a Sunday. I mean, if you think about it, we kind of, you know, we you're all seated right now and I'm standing. Isn't that curious? Do you realize in Jesus's day, it would be just the opposite. In Jesus's day, the rabbi sat and those who listened to him stood. Maybe it was the way to get the preacher to get to the point quicker or something like that. So that people wouldn't mill her up. But that's how they did it in those days. The rabbi sat and the audience or whatever you would like to call it, the listeners, they stood. Well, we do it differently this day, but I don't think there's anything particularly holy about me standing. You're sitting. We, we could reverse the roles. Although I have to say, if they were to put a chair up here or a stool for me to sit on, I would have a very difficult time. I just get a little too wound up. And it's like, I got to be on my feet to talk about these particular things with you. But then you think about our posture during worship. I mean, during worship, we'll say, let's all stand. Now, is it more holy to worship God standing than in some other posture? I don't necessarily think so. Standing has a way of unifying us and sort of getting our attention and maybe getting the blood flowing just a little bit. And the Bible talks about worshiping or praying, standing before God, who stand by night in the house of the Lord to stand before the presence of God. The Bible talks about that. But, you know, the Bible also says that it's okay to kneel. And if somebody wanted to kneel before God in our time of worship, would there be anything wrong with that whatsoever? No. Now, I know that our benches and such here aren't the most conducive for it. You might have to turn yourself a little bit sideways. But listen, if God was moving upon a person to kneel down in their worship of him, God forbid that they would say, no, no, I'm not going to do that, Lord. I don't see anybody else doing it, so I'm not going to do it. No, kneel down. And then there's some of us who are standing in the midst of a time of worship and somebody feels their legs to be a little bit fatigued and they wonder, well, I think maybe I should sit down, but will I be unspiritual if I sit down? No, sit down. What's more spiritual to sit down and to be able to focus on Jesus as you worship or to stand there and think, oh, my aching legs, oh, my aching legs. See, listen, we may tell you at a particular place, stand, sit, whatever, but listen. What we want to do is simply say, take a posture that enables you to focus on Jesus and worship him in spirit and in truth. And actually, I could argue for a sitting posture. Show. Is not Jesus seated in heaven at the right hand of God, the father? Are we not seated with him in heavenly places? So if you're going to sit down in the midst of the worship, say, Lord, they're standing, but I'm seated with Jesus in heavenly places, worshiping you. Seated, kneeling, standing. Listen, the most important thing is the posture of the heart. But notice this, Jesus seated in heaven, verse 13, till his enemies are made his footstool. This looks forward to the consummation of the work of Jesus. That time where the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and all things are reconciled under Jesus. And it makes us see that from beginning to end, his work has a continuity. 
that before time began, God the Son existed, but then he took on a human nature, adding it to his divine nature, and he appeared as a baby in Bethlehem. And so the incarnation leads to his sinless life, and his sinless life leads to his death on the cross, and his death on the cross leads to the resurrection, and the resurrection leads to the ascension to glory, and the ascension to glory leads to him being seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. And then now, from there... He will reign until he gloriously returns and brings all things under his authority. It's all part of a connected work. But notice this in verse 14. It says that he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, this makes it plain that the work of Jesus is effective For those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? It means this. Christian growth is evidence of Christian life. I'm going to say this straightforwardly. I, I don't say it to condemn anybody. Because again, I say it to myself. But if your life is worse after five years of supposedly walking with Jesus than it was when you started. There's a fair question whether or not you're really walking with Jesus at all. Do you see what it's talking about? This is effective for those who are being sanctified. This work of the Holy Spirit is happening in them. And now, starting at verse 15, he's going to quote again one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah, speaking of the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit, verse 15, the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. In other words, now the writer of Hebrews brings in once again a quotation from the Old Testament from Jeremiah chapter 31, speaking about the new covenant that God promised to bring, the new covenant that would bring new life. Look at it here, verse 16. I will put my laws into their hearts. We've already spoken about this, about this being a feature of the new covenant, to have the law, the the life of God written into our heart. But not only that, look at verse 17. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That is what the new covenant offered. It's not the only thing, but that is one of the things that the new covenant offered that the old covenant could not. That God would forget about our sins. When you think about your life and the sins that you have committed, even though they may be sins from long ago, Wouldn't you be very happy if God forgot about those? Do you realize this is what he says he'll do? Think about it. For for some of us, it's a lot for God to forget. But it's what he promises to do in light of what Jesus did on the cross and the work of the new covenant. And the Christian in their walk with God must attempt to do with their sin exactly what God has done to forget about it. Now, not to forget about it in terms of being a warning, not to forget about it in terms of about being an instruction so that we do not fall into that sin again, but to forget about it as it having any dominating power over us anymore or any obligation that we owe to God. We are not in probation before God, but we are truly forgiven. And how do we know? We know because Jesus died once for all. Look at that last verse there. Verse 18 where he says, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sins. Where sins are really forgiven. Where sins are really forgotten. 
You don't need to have a continual offering for sin. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is no longer on the cross. He died on the cross. He made a once and for all offering for us. And now the benefits of that is extended to each and every one of us who will take part in this new covenant. And it's a wonderful invitation that he gives. I love how Charles Spurgeon stated it. Somebody came up to me last week and they said, I haven't quoted Spurgeon for a few weeks. So here we go. Spurgeon wrote this. The Christ who died on Calvary's cross will not have to die again for my new sins or to offer a fresh atonement for the transgressions that I may yet commit. No, but once for all gathering up the whole mass of his people's sins into one colossal burden, he took it upon his shoulders and flung the whole of it into the sepulcher wherein once he slept and there it is buried, never to be raised again to bear witness against the redeemed anymore forever and ever. Your sin, past, present, and future, it's atoned for at the cross. Friends, this is an important point because some of you feel like the cross was only effective for the sins you committed before you came to Jesus. Now you're on your own. No, the cross is for us for every sin we commit past, present and future. What God calls us to do is to participate in the new covenant. Now, When I look out upon a group of people like this, it's easy for me to assume that everybody in this room has put their faith in Jesus. It's easy for me to assume that everybody has said, yes, Lord, I want this new covenant. It's easy for me to assume that everybody has the assurance of that new covenant relationship with Jesus. But wouldn't that be a tragic error on my part? To assume that everybody in here has put their faith in Jesus, that everybody in here looks to the cross to make them right with God and not to their own actions? No. No matter of fact, our text gives us such an urgency. It's so urgent in our text that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all speak to us and invite us to come to this new covenant. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And in the midst of that prayer, I'm going to give you an invitation to participate in this new covenant, to say, I believe in you, Jesus, and the work you did for me on the cross. And this is for everybody who realizes I don't have it or for everybody who realizes I don't have an assurance of it. It's for you right here, right now. Matter of fact, I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do because I don't want to put this upon you as a surprise or some kind of manipulation. In a few moments when I pray, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to say, I want this new covenant. I want to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand. To stand as a declaration of your faith. To be an outward expression of your inward state of heart. But realize it's not just me calling you to this. I want you to see that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, every one of them is into it, calling you right now. After all, the Father does. The Father speaks because it was his will to send the Son. I mean, after all, if you look back at verse uh, Nine, it says very plainly that Jesus said, I have come to do your will, O God. It was the will of the Father to send the Son and accomplish it. So the Father says to you, come, come to me. The Son speaks 
Because his work made it all possible. Verse 12 of Hebrews 10 says this. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice or sin, it's all what Jesus did on the cross to make it possible. So the son speaks and he says, come, come to me. But the spirit speaks as well. Notice what it says in verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. He witnesses to us. And I'll be so bold to say that the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to hearts right now. I have said what I can say, but I feel very limited, very constrained in my ability to bring across the greatness of these things. But I know that the Holy Spirit speaks to hearts in a way far beyond what I can do. And there's those of you right now, you're thinking, is this really for me? Could God want me to stand at this invitation that's about to be made? Does God want me to say, yes, I want the new covenant? Yes, I put this faith in Jesus. How do I even know? Listen, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart right here, right now, saying it is for you. So I'm going to pray. And in the midst of this prayer, I'm going to give an invitation. Let's come before the Lord now in prayer. Father in heaven. We thank you for the greatness of Jesus's work. We thank you that there was a time and there was an occasion where the son presented himself to the father. And he said, a body you have prepared for me and I have come to do your will. O God, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that Jesus really is different from everyone else who's ever walked this earth. So, Lord, thinking about Jesus and his greatness and the new covenant that he makes for us and the death that he died to cleanse us from our sins. I pray that right now you'd prepare people in this room to respond to an invitation. So, friends, right now, well, heads are bowed and eyes are reverently closed in prayer. I ask you. Do you want to be part of this new covenant? Do you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ? If that's you, tell God so right now. Even if it's in a whispered voice, say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I want this new covenant. And if that's you, would you please just stand to your feet so you can have an outward expression of this inward doing. God bless you. And you, ma'am. And you back there. God bless you. Others, God bless you and you and you. Others here, if you want to make this proclamation of faith, say, I want this new covenant. I need this new covenant. I'll just give a moment more. We're so grateful for people all over this room standing. Bless you. Anyone else? Those of you who are standing, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can say it in a whispered voice. It's not the loudness of your voice. It's the sincerity of your heart as you pray this. So just repeat after me. Jesus, I come to you and I believe in you. I ask that you cleanse me from my sins. I ask that you forget about my sins. Because of what you did on the cross... I pray that you give me this new life, this new covenant, this new start with you. I invite you to work in my life. 
fill me with your spirit and to walk every day now after you. Receive my life, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen, people.